um, uh, 14. I usually preach from the NIV, so I might get stumble a bit. So the, uh, you have the ESV uh, here. Also, my Bible looks like it's going to sh- shut me half the time, so I hope it won't uh, do that. But uh, let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you give us ears to hear and that the seed of the word will not come on to stony ground or ground where it's uh, the cares of the world and so on, uh, choke it, uh, but, uh, or persecution and opposition uh, quashes it, but uh, there would be really good soil prepared by you so that we receive the word and it produces an abundant harvest in our lives for your glory. So hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning I want to do a very simple thing, and that is to talk about grace. And in doing that, I'm not alone. There's a lot of talk about uh, grace in the uh, world today. There's almost endless stream of books and online material about the, the grace of God. And in many of these things, the emphasis is on how God is gracious in accepting people like you and me just for who we are. And... Uh, And God wants them to do us good. They're all about affirming us and uh, making us to feel good about ourselves. But there is a problem. And the problem is that with all the talk about grace, there's often little talk about sin. You see, you can't understand grace without understanding sin. And that's because as sinners, uh, God is gracious in saving people like you and me through the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) And it's only as we understand how deep our sin is and how much we deserve God's wrath and anger that we can begin to understand how deep God's grace is and because of all that he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a person who understood the grace of God more (coughs) than most people was John Newton. Uh, John Newton wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, that we just uh, sung. And that hymn is very popular, even with people who have a very loose connection. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, If any, (coughs) sorry, a loose connection, if any, uh, with uh, Christianity. Thanks very much. Uh, It's sung on many occasions. Uh, Just a a year or so ago, it was sung at the inauguration of uh, President Biden. (coughs) when I could assure you that nothing that is distinctively Christian would have even entered into uh, the entire uh, uh, proceedings. And uh, the reason for that is possible because the verses that mention, particularly verse 5 in the hymn we just sung, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is omitted. It's just so generally about grace and not about grace in Jesus Christ. But to really appreciate the hymn... (coughs) Sorry about this. Something's happened in my throat just... (coughs) but to really appreciate the the hymn and to sing it meaningfully you must understand that it was written out of John Newton's own experience as a sinner saved by God you see Newton you might know had been a slave trader and and on his own admission had committed every known sin He knew himself to be a sinner. But he had been converted when he repented of his sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. 
And that's why as he neared death as an old man, he could say, although my memory is failing, I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. But for Newton, God's grace was not only about being saved from his wrath and the hope of eternal life. For Newton, God's grace was also about being changed as a sinner so that he became more godly. And one of the letters he wrote, he wrote many, many letters to people over the years. He, was a great, he had a great gift of writing letters of encouragement and exhortation and admonition uh, to Christians of all, all kinds and different types of, of people. He had an amazing impact, and you can read some of those letters that are still published today. And in one of those letters, he wrote this, Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the Apostle Paul and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it is this life-transforming grace, as well as soul-saving grace, that we're thinking about this morning from these verses in Paul's letter to Titus. Uh, Paul has already outlined in verses 1 to 10 the godly lifestyle that's appropriate to, to those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who believe in the gospel of Jesus, he says, should live in a certain way. But as for you, teach what accords with sound go- doctrine. That is the doctrine of the gospel. And Titus is not only to teach the doctrine of the gospel, but the lifestyle, the, 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 the way a person is to live who believes in Jesus Christ offered in uh, the gospel. But the question is, how is such a lifestyle possible? This lifestyle that affects how older men are to live, and and older women, and younger women, and younger men, and slaves working in in people's homes. How are people to live, and how is such a lifestyle uh, possible? How can sinners like us live in a way that's appropriate to the gospel that we believe? Of course, in ourselves, as we know, we don't have the ability But the reason that we can be godly as Christians, the reason we can live a lifestyle appropriate to the gospel, even if imperfectly, is because of the very gospel that has saved us. The gospel gives us who believe in Jesus for salvation the motivation and the power to live to please God. That is, to be godly. You see, the gospel is not only about how we begin the Christian life but also about how we continue in the Christian life. Motivated and empowered by the gospel, we can, in some measure, become perfectly, become godly. Not perfectly. We'll never get that perfect godliness in this life. That would only happen when we see Jesus and are in glory with him. But we can make progress in the life of godliness. <clears throat> and that's part of the reason that Jesus has saved us. For sure he has saved us to live forever with him and his people in the new creation. As we will glorify him with the Father and with the Spirit as the one true and living God. But we're also saved by Jesus to be godly in this world as we live here day by day in this coming week and the things we do wherever we go. And we do so as we live in hope of his return. And it is this amazing grace to sinners like us that we want to think about this morning. 
And I trust that as we do so, each of us who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be motivated and empowered to be more godly. Like the early believers in Crete, who with Titus first heard this letter, we need to hear what Paul wrote to them today. So we put this into practice. This is not just a letter for them back then. This is a rather curious bit of uh, information for people living on an island, a bit like Sicily, in the middle of the uh, Aegean Sea. No, this is for us, God's people today, to hear God's word to us. And as with the people who first heard this letter on the island of Crete, we live in a world that is hostile to godliness. It's not a friendly place. It might seem like it, a lovely day like this, everything's rather nice and so on. But all around us, as you know, at work and school and so on, there are forces, there are influences, the things that are hostile to, uh, to uh, godliness. I think it was David was just praying uh, before uh, the service about the Sunday school, how the children will be equipped in their thinking and so on to resist some of these things. And I was talking to someone yesterday at a wedding, and uh, they were just saying some of the things they're discovering their children are being taught in school. And uh, it's a very hostile environment um, um, out there. So we need to take heart from this passage. But you also, you need to listen to this passage if you're not a Christian uh, this morning. For what we read here tells you why the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ can change your life for good, as it does for everyone who believes in him. So let's turn to the passage, and I have two uh, main points. The first one is this, that the grace of God has appeared for our salvation. The grace of God has appeared for our salvation. Uh, the word for in verse 11 is very uh, significant. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the godly lifestyle that he has been writing about, and particularly in verses 1 uh, to 10, the lifestyle that can make godly slaves, in which godly slaves can make their lifestyle uh, attractive, the teaching of God our Savior attractive, verse 10. He's saying that is possible because of the appearance of God's grace. Having told us what we must do to be godly as Christians, he now tells us how that is possible. And in thinking about godliness or the Christian life, we must remember this. If we only think about what we must do, we can easily fall into the trap of legalism or moralism, just thinking that we just have to obey certain sort of rules and everything is outwardly okay. We, think that the, we can think that the Christian life becomes all about conforming to the law of God. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with conforming to the law of God. God wants us to obey his will as revealed in his moral law. However, the law has no power in itself to change us for good. Law tells us what to do, but gives us no power or motivation to obey God. On its own, law is like a demanding husband who's always finding fault with his wife and who's always right. You know, he might be right. He might be saying she can do the right things, but he's, he's, rather, he's, a, he's, he's just very demanding all the time, and the law can be like that. And for many, such legalism or moralism is the default position when the gospel is absent. Sadly, this graceless approach to obeying God characterizes too many religious and morally upright people. And at best, it produces a joyless Christians. Christians have no joy in their obedience to God. 
and at worst, proud and hypocritical non-Christians who think they are Christians, just because they're outwardly conforming. But inwardly, there's no delight in God, no joy, no, no, because there's no gospel there. Well, so that we don't fall into this trap, and so that we know why we can do what God commands, we must understand the grace of God in the gospel. And Paul tells us that this grace has appeared. It has appeared. And how has God's grace appeared? It has appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is the grace of God incarnate. Jesus is the grace of God in human flesh. Do you want to know what grace looks like? Then look no further than the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the walking, breathing, talking grace of God. Grace is not just some sort of abstraction. It is in person in the Lord Jesus. We see God's grace in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. We see God's grace in the life of Jesus doing so much good. We see the grace of God in the death of Jesus at Calvary. We see the grace of God in the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus to the Father's throne where he now reigns over all things. Don't think of God's grace as an abstract thing, but rather think of God's grace as a living person, as the Lord Jesus Christ. And this grace that has appeared, as Paul tells us here, brings salvation to all people. God's grace has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ because people like us, people like you and me, need to be saved. And saved from what? Saved from the wrath and the judgment of God for our sins. You see, as sinful rebels, we deserve the wrath of God. As the Bible makes abundantly clear over and over again, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of the Bible, we're told again and again and again that as sinners, we're under, we deserve the wrath of God. But in Jesus Christ, God himself has graciously come to us in person to save us from his own wrath and judgment. Uh, The salvation is literally uh, for for everyone, for all people, uh, Paul uh, says. That doesn't mean that everyone will be saved because of the grace of God has appeared in Jesus. The Bible doesn't teach universal salvation for uh, everyone, regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus. No, what Paul means here is that salvation is for every kind of person. Salvation is for men and women, for Jews and Gentiles, for every kind of ethnic group, for people of all different social backgrounds, of all different uh, ages. This salvation is for everyone. And for that reason, salvation is offered to everyone freely as it's preached and accepted by everyone and all kinds of people as it is believed. As Sarah presented it in this room, so many different types of people, different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different ages, and yet saved by the grace of God. Oh, my friends, how amazing is the grace of God that has appeared in the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. But how has this grace actually saved sinners like us? It's wonderful to think about it, but how has it actually saved sinners like us? Well, look at verse 14. This grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ, who who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his very own possession who are zealous for good works. 
the grace of God for our salvation is supremely seen in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, Jesus gave himself for us. On the cross, Jesus willingly offered up himself as the one final sacrifice for sins. As Jesus himself says, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 44, verse 45. Jesus was the ransom or the sacrifice that was offered up in the place of sinners. And as such, he bore the punishment that we deserved, and he turned away uh, the wrath of God. As it is put in the uh, letter to the Hebrews, Jesus offered himself unblemished to God and was sacrificed once to take away uh, sins. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it in his first letter, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And so with the Apostle Paul, uh, we can say that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. It is by the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross that we have been redeemed, that we have been rescued. That is, we've been rescued from the, the, the punishment for our sins that we deserve by the self-substitution of Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross for us. He took our place. He substituted himself for us. And the price for our freedom from sin and death has been paid so that we are no longer our own, but we now belong to the Lord Jesus. He's the one who has then redeemed us from all lawlessness. And he's done so not only by dealing with the guilt of our sins so that we can be forgiven, but also dealing with the power of sin so that we can now live for him and we can become godly. No longer are we enslaved to lawlessness. No longer are we enslaved to wickedness. That wickedness, that lawlessness that once reigned in our hearts, that once controlled our lives. Because of his death on the cross for us, Jesus has purified from, for, for, for himself, as Paul puts it there in verse 14, purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. By the death of Jesus, we have been cleansed from the guilt and from the shame and from the filth of sin. And Jesus did all that. Why? Because, as Paul puts it there, he wants a, a, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is, Jesus wants a people who are his treasured possession, his, his very special own people. The language here echoes that of Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, where God says that if Israel obeys him, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. You will be my own peculiar, unique people who belong uh, to me. Well, as God's new covenant people, we have been redeemed by Jesus to be his treasured possession. And as such, we have been given grace to be zealous to do uh, good works, or eager to do what is good, as the NIV puts it. In the new covenant, there's an eagerness, there's, there's a zeal, to do what God commands. 
from our hearts is a desire to live lives that are holy and, and godly. And godly. But where does this zeal come from? Where does this eagerness uh, come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit who indwells everyone who believes. The Holy Spirit brings the grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ into our hearts so that we're zealous, we're eager to do good works. We're eager to do what is good. And to make that happen, God's grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our redemption. Let me ask you a question uh, this morning. Do you know for yourself this grace that has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know for yourself this, this, this grace? I think I mentioned earlier, you have to know this person. That's a problem with so many people in Sicily. They don't know this person. They have this sort of formal religion. That's the trouble with so many people. But do, we have, do you know this personally for yourself? Have you turned from your sins and are you trusting in Jesus as your Savior? Don't assume you, simp- you, you have simply because you've been raised in a, in, a, in a Christian home or you've been brought up to attend a, a good Christian church like uh, this one or, you, that, or that merely you assume you're a Christian because you come from a country where almost everybody seems to be a, a Christian. No, you must make this personal. You must personally repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as offered to you in the gospel. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are, since the grace of God has appeared in Jesus and offers salvation to, to all people, to every kind of person. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your age, whatever your social class or whatever, uh, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And when you do, you will know, as every Christian knows, that you've been redeemed by Jesus from all the lawlessness of your life, the wickedness in which you live, and that you've been purified to be a person who is and who belongs to a people who are his very own treasured possession. You know, see, it's not just that you're saved and then you're on your own. You belong to this people of God. That is the very possession of the Lord Jesus. That's expressed in a local church like this, belonging to the people of God, gathered in in one place. But wherever the church is, this church or East London Tabernacle or wherever the Lord moves you in years to come, you're part of the people of God. And if you want to have your sins forgiven and to escape the tyranny of sin so that you can begin to be changed for good, then this is what must happen to you. And it begins by repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But that brings us to the second thing we want to note this morning, and that is that the grace of God now teaches us how to live. The grace of God now teaches us how to live. Having been saved by grace, uh, grace now becomes our teacher in how we live as Christians. Look at verses 12 uh, to 13. Training us or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the, the, the word there we, we um, have translated there, training or teaching, means not just simply imparting uh, information. Just sort of, you know, you might have a seminar or someone just imparts a lot of information. That's not really uh, what it is here. Uh, rather, it's, a, it's whole life training. 
It's, or it's discipline, much as a, a father or a mother might do with their children. Let's see the way Paul uses this word, actually, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where he uh, says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction or the training or the teaching of uh, the Lord. And what Paul is saying in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, is that the grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ teaches us or trains us up in a way similar to the way in which a father will train up or teach his uh, children. They'll instruct them, just just, just tell them lots of information, but they'll help them, they'll set an example, they'll they'll, they'll, they'll give a very hands-on approach, you know, teaching a child how to ride a bike. It's not just giving them, telling them what to do, you have to actually help the child, and of course, more significant things, how to live a a, a decent, good life. You have to, it's not just information, It's, it's, it's a whole life approach to education. Of course, that involves imparting information. As Christians, we need to know and understand our faith so that we can live as Christians. But this teaching is also very practical in the way it enables us to learn how to live as Christians. And it is important that if we are to live faithfully as Christians in this world, that we keep hold of both the doctrinal and practical aspects of what is being taught. And if the Lord puts us in a position where we teach other Christians, we must make sure that we teach both, our teaching is both doctrinal and practical. Uh, That's, again, Paul says that to Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with the sound doctrine. There must be the sound doctrine. But there also must be what accords with the sound doctrine. The practical and the doctrinal. Now what is it then that the grace uh, grace of God teaches us as Christians? Well, there's a negative and positive aspect to this. Negatively, the grace of God teaches us, uh, verse uh, 12, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the negative side. We must renounce or repudiate. We must say no to ungodliness. That is, we must reject decisively all that is contrary to God's will and opposed to him as revealed in his word. And at the same time, we must renounce and say no and repudiate worldly passions, uh, the sinful desires and lusts of the world and its enmity to God, God and, and that it uses to shape us and control us. We must firmly reject. We must say no to worldly passions. In a word, we must say No to sin in whatever form it takes. Uh, Really, what Paul is writing about here is what he describes elsewhere is putting sin to death. He puts that very powerfully in one of his earlier letters to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in, in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, or which is idolatry. On account of these things, a wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked, in these you once lived when you were living in them. But now you must put them away, or you must say no to them. You must renounce them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self. We have to say no. This is putting sin to death. It's what the old theologians call the mortification of uh, sin. 
And this is what we must be doing every day in relation to sin. Every day we must humble ourselves before God as we confess or acknowledge our sins before him and repent of them. And such repentance means rejecting our sins by turning from them to the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. And in doing so, we will be forgiven. We're, we're assured of that. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we turn from our sins and repent of them and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be forgiven. And if genuine, such repentance will not mean only simply having a a bad feeling about our sins. We do feel that. We feel remorse. We do feel that. We've done something bad. We feel bad in our conscience. But if you genuinely repent of your sins, it will mean that however imperfectly we begin to change our behavior for good, we begin to turn around, maybe stumbling at first, but that a transformation begins to happen in um, our, our lives. Which brings me to what grace teaches us positively, what it teaches us positively. You see, positively, grace teaches us, as Paul again puts it here in verse 14, to live self, uh, verse 12, I mean, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace teaches us to live a self-controlled life. Grace teaches us to, to control our appetites, to control our desires, to control our passions. Rather than being controlled by these things, we begin to control them. And controlling them enables us to to live in a way that pleases God. Like athletes training for for a competition, we we need to discipline ourselves. Listen to how Paul uh, describes this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete? But only one receives the prize. So run that you're, you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. And so I do not run aimlessly. So you know, you go out in the park and just run around in circles. No, you, you run in a certain course. You have a certain thing, uh, 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 a discipline in mind. I, I do not box as one beating in the air. Imagine that, if someone just beating in the air aimlessly. Nobody aims, you know, hit the target or whatever he's hitting. But I discipline, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That was Paul, exercising discipline in his life so he could become more godly. That's what you and I must do as well, to live a self-controlled life. But grace also teaches, teaches us to live an upright life. That is a life, grace teaches us to live in line with the righteousness of God revealed in his moral law. You see, there's no conflict between grace and law, as sometimes people suppose. In the new covenant, God's grace enables us to do what God commands. Uh, Augustine put it so well when he prayed, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will. Yes. Open your word. Show me what you demand. And then give me what you command. Give me the ability to do what you command. 
And as Augustine knew and every Christian knows from experience, God answers that prayer. And finally, grace teaches us to live a godly life. Godliness, I define as devotion to God actively expressed in a good life empowered by the gospel. Godliness is devotion to God actively expressed in a good life empowered by the gospel. And a godly life is then a good life that in its various aspects is an active expression of our devotion to God. Such devotion uh, embraces our worship and communion with God, as well as our relationships and our work and our church life and our politics and our money and our education and our recreation and everything else. That's the godly life we should live. And grace teaches us to live such a godly life. But if that is what grace teaches, how does grace teach us? How does grace actually teach us? How does it, as it were, stand in the classroom of our lives and teach us these things? Well, certainly God uses the Bible as we prayerfully read it and meditate uh, upon it and hear it read and hear it preached in church. Indeed, God inspired the Bible and gave it to us to, so that it is, rebu- it is useful for teaching and for rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy uh, 3. And then, of course, there's the Lord's Supper, when we come and remember Christ's death, and as we have fellowship with God's people in, in the church, and all the other means of grace that, that we have. However, much as we need all this, we need something more. The Holy Spirit uses all these things to teach us, but we need something more. We need him. We need the Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes in Jesus has received the Holy Spirit and is indwelt by him. And among the many things the Holy Spirit does in our lives as believers is to give us that zeal, that eagerness to do good works, to to do what is good. That is, the Holy Spirit motivates us to do good. He kindles in our hearts the thankfulness to Jesus for all that he has done as our Savior. And that motivates us then to live for him out of gratitude. However, the Holy Spirit not only motivates us, he empowers us. He doesn't give us the motive, but not the power to do it. No, he motivates us, but he also empowers us to do what he motivates us to do. He empowers us to reject ungodly and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. We don't have the strength in ourselves. I don't have the strength in myself. I'm, I'm sure each of us is a Christian. No, we simply do not have the strength to live in the way that God commands in his word. But the Holy Spirit gives us that strength. On our part, we may feel weak and powerless. But the Holy Spirit is present with us to make us strong and powerful. Indeed, his power is made perfect in our weakness, so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, who knew this in his own experience, for when I am weak, then I am strong. We feel weak. I can't just, I don't, I can't have the power to obey God in this particular way you might find. But in your weakness at that point, the power of God is at work by the Holy Spirit to, to, to do what he motivates you to do, to live a godly life. And that's really the secret of the Christian life. In our weakness, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work so that we can say no to all that is ungodly and yes to all that is godly. And all of this happens as we 
in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 13. We live in this present age when the saving reign of Jesus has invaded this world, a world that's in rebellion against him. And living as Christians in such a world, we have a blessed hope. We have a hope full of the promise of blessing that will be ours when Jesus returns in person. The Lord Jesus Christ, who first appeared in the humility of his birth, will again, at the end of the age, appear again physically for us. And it will be the glory of Jesus as our great God and Savior that will be what is visible when he appears again. Jesus will appear in the human flesh he assumed in the womb of his virgin mother Mary. Uh, But then, when he appears again, it will be a glorified body, a body glorified because of his resurrection and ascension. Not the baby in the manger, but this glorious Lord in a physical body, yes, appearing again. But Jesus will also appear in the glory of his deity as the Son of God. Jesus will appear as our great God and Savior. Oh, what a glorious sight that will be. What a glorious sight that will be. But right now, in this present age, we wait for that to happen. We wait for that appearing. And that means, as we wait for that appearing, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And living such lives is not easy. It wasn't for the Christians living in first century Crete. They lived in a hostile, pagan, idolatrous culture. Everything was against everything the gospel stood for. These few Christians in their little towns, little churches here and there on the island of Crete were to begin to live these godly lives. The same is true for us living in 21st century Britain where, again, everything is against us and, and the godly life we're supposed to live. But God gives us the grace to live such lives as we wait for Jesus to return. And as we wait and hope, God gives us all the grace we need. He gives us the Holy Spirit who both motivates us and empowers us to live to please him. Well, my friends, how amazing is the grace of God. No wonder John Newton wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. From first to last, God saves wretches like us who once were lost but now can see. Grace opens our hearts to believe and through all the dangers, toils, and snares of life, that grace leads us home. By his grace, the Lord Jesus promises good to us. And by his word secures our hope so that when this mortal life has passed and earthly days have ceased, we shall possess with Christ at last eternal joy and peace. But right now in this present age, we wait for the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can, by God's amazing grace, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And as we do so, we can say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, my friends, there's no sweeter sound to the sinner than the sound of God's amazing grace that has appeared In Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are amazed at your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we use that word so 
familiar to us who are Christians, and yet when we think about it, we're, we're just staggered, we're overwhelmed at such amazing grace. You save sinners like us, and you transform us by that very grace that saves us from your wrath to live the upright, holy, and godly lives that you desire. And, and Lord, help us to do that as we wait for Jesus, who appeared once first and born in Bethlehem and lived his life and dying on the cross. That same Jesus will return in power and glory. But until he does so, Lord, in the lives you give us in this world, help us by your grace to live in a way that pleases you, that honors you. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.